Chapter forty three, part one of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter forty three, part one. The good old summer time. All through the summer, the crowd of ragged trousered philanthropists continued to toil and sweat at their noble and unselfish task of making money for Mr. Rushton painting the outside of houses and shops, washing off and distempering ceilings, stripping old wallpaper off walls, painting and papering rooms and staircases, building new rooms or other additions to old houses or business premises, digging up old drains, repairing leaky roofs and broken windows. Their zeal and enthusiasm in the good cause was unbounded. They were supposed to start work at six o'clock, but most of them were usually to be found waiting outside the job at about a quarter to that hour sitting on the curbstone or the doorstep. Their operations extended all over the town. At all hours of the day they were seen to be either going or returning from jobs, carrying ladders, planks, pots of paint, pails of whitewash, earthenware, chimney-pots, drain-pipes, lengths of guttering, closet-pans, grates, bundles of wallpaper, buckets of paste, sacks of cement, and loads of bricks and mortar. Quite a common spectacle for gods and men was a procession consisting of a hand-cart loaded up with such materials being pushed or dragged through the public streets by about half a dozen of these imperialists in broken boots and with battered, stained, discoloured bowler hats or caps splashed with paint and whitewash, their stand-up collars dirty, limp and crumpled, and their rotten second-hand misfit clothing saturated with sweat and plastered with mortar. Even the assistants in the grocers and drapers' shops laughed and ridiculed and pointed the finger of scorn at them as they passed. The superior classes, those who do nothing, regarded them as a sort of lower animal. A letter appeared in the Obscura one week from one of these well-dressed loafers, complaining of the annoyance caused to the better-class visitor by workmen walking on the pavement as they passed along the grand parade in the evening on their way home from work, and suggesting that they should walk in the roadway. When they heard of the letter, a lot of the workmen adopted the suggestion and walked in the road so as to avoid contaminating the idlers. This letter was followed by others of a somewhat similar kind, and one or two written in a patronising strain in defence of the working classes by persons who evidently knew nothing about them. There was also a letter from an individual who signed himself Morpheus, complaining that he was often awakened out of his beauty sleep in the middle of the night by the clattering noise of the workmen's boots as they passed his house on their way to work in the morning. Morpheus wrote that not only did they make a dreadful noise with the horrible iron-clad boots, but they were in the habit of coughing and spitting a great deal, which was very unpleasant to hear, and they conversed in loud tones. Sometimes their conversation was not at all edifying, for it consisted largely of bad language, which Morpheus assumed to be attributable to the fact that they were out of temper because they had to rise so early. As a rule they worked till half-past five in the evening, and by the time they reached home it was six o'clock. When they had taken their evening meal and had a wash it was nearly eight. About nine most of them went to bed so as to be able to get up about half-past four the next morning to make a cup of tea before leaving home at half-past five to go to work again. Frequently it happened that they had to leave home earlier than this because their job was more than half an hour's walk away. It did not matter how far away the job was from the shop. The men had to walk to and fro in their own time for trades union rules were a dead letter in Mugsborough. 
There were no tram fares or train fares or walking time allowed for the likes of them. Ninety-nine out of every hundred of them did not believe in such things as those. They had much more sense than to join trade unions. On the contrary, they believed in placing themselves entirely at the mercy of their good, kind, liberal and Tory masters. Very frequently it happened, when only a few men were working together, that it was not convenient to make tea for breakfast or dinner, and then some of them brought tea with them, ready-made in bottles, and drank it cold. But most of them went to the nearest pub and ate their food there with a glass of beer. Even those who would rather have had tea or coffee had beer, because if they went to a temperance restaurant or coffee tavern, it generally happened that they were not treated very civilly, unless they bought something to eat as well as to drink and the tea at such places was really dearer than beer, and the latter certainly was quite as good a drink as the stewed tea or the liquid mud that was sold as coffee at cheap workmen's eating-houses. There were some men who were, as they thought, exceptionally lucky. The firms they worked for were busy enough to let them work two hours overtime every night, till half-past seven, without stopping for tea. Most of these arrived home about eight, completely flattened out. Then they had some tea and a wash, and before they knew where they were, it was about half-past nine. Then they went to sleep again till half-past four or five the next morning. They were usually so tired when they got home at night that they never had any inclination for study or any kind of self-improvement, even if they had had the time. They had plenty of time to study during the winter, and their favourite subject then was how to preserve themselves from starving to death. This overtime, however, was the exception, for although in former years it had been the almost invariable rule to work till half-past seven in summer, most of the firms now made a practice of ceasing work at five-thirty. The revolution which had taken place in this matter was a favourite topic of conversation amongst the men, who spoke regretfully of the glorious past when things were busy, and they used to work fifteen, sixteen, or even eighteen hours a day but nowadays there were nearly as many chaps out of work in the summer as in the winter. They used to discuss the causes of the change. One was, of course, the fact that there was not so much building going on as formerly, and another was the speeding up of the slave-driving, and the manner in which the work was now done, or rather, scamped. As old Philpot said, he could remember the time, when he was a nipper, when such a job as that at the cave would have lasted at least six months, and they would have had more hands on it too but it would have been done properly, not messed up like it was. All the woodwork would have been rubbed down with pumice-stone and water, all the knots cut out and the holes properly filled up, and the work properly rubbed down with glass-paper between every coat. But nowadays the only place you see a bit of pumice-stone was in a glass case in a museum with a label on it. Pumice-stone, formerly used by house-painters. Most of them spoke of the bygone times with poignant regret but there were a few, generally fellows, who had been contaminated by contact with socialists, or whose characters had been warped and degraded by the perusal of socialist literature, who said that they did not desire to work overtime at all. Ten hours a day were quite enough for them. In fact, they would rather do only eight. What they wanted, they said, was not more work, but more grub, more clothes, more leisure and more pleasure and better homes. They wanted to be able to go for country walks or bicycle rides, to go out fishing, or to go to the seaside and bathe and lie on the beach and so forth. But these were only a very few. There were not many so selfish as this. The majority desired nothing but to be allowed to work, and as for their children, why, what was good enough for themselves ought to be good enough for their kids. 
They often said that such things as leisure, culture, pleasure, and the benefits of civilization were never intended for the likes of us. They did not all actually say this, but that was what their conduct amounted to, for they not only refused to help to bring about a better state of things for their children, but they ridiculed and opposed and cursed and abused those who were trying to do it for them. The foulest words that came out of their mouths were directed against the men of their own class in the House of Commons, the Labour members, and especially the Socialists, whom they spoke of as fellows who were too bloody lazy to work for a living, and who wanted the working classes to keep them. Some of them said that they did not believe in helping their children to become anything better than their parents had been, because in such cases the children, when they grew up, looked down upon and were ashamed of their fathers and mothers. They seemed to think that if they loved and did their duty to their children, the probability was that the children would prove ungrateful, as if even if that were true it would be any excuse for their indifference. Another cause of the shortage of work was the intrusion into the trade of so many outsiders, fellows like Sawkins and the other lightweights. Whatever other causes there were, there could be no doubt that the hurrying and scamping was a very real one. Every job had to be done at once, as if it were a matter of life or death. It must be finished by a certain time. If the job was an empty house, Misery's yarn was that it was let, and the people were coming at the end of the week. Therefore everything must be finished by Wednesday night. All the ceilings had to be washed off, the walls stripped and repapered, and two coats of paint inside and outside the house. New drains were to be put in, and all broken windows and locks and broken plaster repaired. A number of men, usually about half as many as there should have been, would be sent to do the work, and one man was put in charge of the job. These sub-foremen or coddies knew that if they made their jobs pay, they would be put in charge of others and be kept on in preference to other men as long as the firm had any work, so they helped Misery to scheme and scamp the work and watched and drove the men under their charge, and these latter poor wretches, knowing that their only chance of retaining their employment was to tear into it, tore into it like so many maniacs. Instead of cleaning any parts of the woodwork that were greasy or very dirty, they brushed them over with a coat of spirit varnish before painting, to make sure that the paint would dry. Places where the plaster of the walls was damaged were repaired with what was humorously called garden cement, which was the technical term for dirt out of the garden, and the surface was skimmed over with proper material. Ceilings that were not very dirty were not washed off, but dusted, and lightly gone over with a thin coat of whitewash. The old paper was often left upon the walls of rooms that were supposed to be stripped before being repapered, and to conceal this the joints of the old paper were rubbed down so that they should not be perceptible through the new paper. As far as possible Misery and the sub-foreman avoided doing the work the customers paid for, and even what little they did was hurried over anyhow. A reign of terror the terror of the sack prevailed on all jobs, which were carried on to the accompaniment of a series of alarms and excursions. No man felt safe for a moment. At the most unexpected times misery would arrive and rush like a whirlwind all over the job. If he happened to find a man having a spell, the culprit was immediately discharged, but he did not get the opportunity of doing this very often, for everybody was too terrified to leave off working even for a few minutes' rest. From the moment of Hunter's arrival until his departure, a state of panic, hurry, scurry, and turmoil reigned. His strident voice rang through the house as he bellowed out to them to rouse themselves, get it done, smear it on anyhow, tar it over. We've got another job to start when you've done this. 
Occasionally, just to keep the others up to concert pitch, he used to sack one of the men for being too slow. They all trembled before him and ran about whenever he spoke to or called them, because they knew that there was always a lot of other men out of work who would be willing and eager to fill their places if they got the sack. Although it was now summer, and the distress committee and all the other committees had suspended operations, there was still always a large number of men hanging about the vicinity of the fountain on the parade, the wage-slave market. When men finished up for the firm they were working for, they usually made for that place. Any master in want of a wage-slave for a few hours, days or weeks could always buy one there. The men knew this, and they also knew that if they got the sack from one firm it was no easy matter to get another job, and that was why they were terrified. When Misery was gone, to repeat the same performance at some other job, the sub-foreman would have a crawl round to see how the chaps were getting on, to find out if they had used up all their paint yet, or to bring them some putty so that they should not have to leave their work to go to get anything themselves. And then very often Rushton himself would come and stalk quietly about the house or stand silently behind the men, watching them as they worked. He seldom spoke to anyone, but just stood there like a graven image or walk about like a dumb animal, a pig, as the men used to say. This individual had a very exalted idea of his own importance and dignity. One man got the sack for presuming to stop him in the street, to ask some question about some work that was being done. Misery went round to all the jobs the next day, and told all the coddies to tell all the hands that they were never to speak to Mr. Rushton if they met him in the street, and the following Saturday the man who had so offended was given his back day ostensibly because there was nothing for him to do, but really for the reason stated above. There was one job, the outside of a large house that stood on elevated ground overlooking the town. The men who were working there were even more than unusually uncomfortable, for it was said that Rushton used to sit in his office and watch them through a telescope. Sometimes, when it was really necessary to get a job done by a certain time, they had to work late, perhaps till eight or nine o'clock. No time was allowed for tea, but some of them brought sufficient food with them in the morning to enable them to have a little about six o'clock in the evening. Others arranged for their children to bring them some tea from home. As a rule, they partook of this without stopping work. They had it on the floor beside them, and ate and drank, and worked at the same time, a paintbrushful of white lead in one hand, and a piece of bread and margarine in the other. On some jobs, if the coddy happened to be a decent sort, they posted a sentry to look out for Hunter or Rushton, while the others knocked off for a few minutes to snatch a mouthful of grub. But it was not always safe to do this, for there was often some crawling sneak with an ambition to become a coddy, who would not scruple to curry favour with misery by reporting the crime. As an additional precaution against the possibility of any of the men idling or wasting their time, each one was given a time-sheet, on which he was required to account for every minute of the day. The form of these sheets varied slightly with different firms. That of Rushton and Co. was shown. One Monday morning Misery gave each of the sub-foremen an envelope containing one of the firm's memorandum forms. Crass opened his and found the following. Crass, when you are on a job with men under you, check and initial their time-sheets every night. If they are called away and sent to some other job, or stood off, check and initial their time-sheets as they leave your job. Any man coming on your job during the day, you must take a note of the exact time of his arrival, and see that his sheet is charged right. Any man who is slow or lazy, or any man that you take notice talking more than is necessary during working hours, you must report him to Mr. Hunter. 
we expect you and the other foreman to help us carry out these rules, and any information given us about any man is treated in confidence. Rushton and Co. Note, this applies to all men of all trades who come on the jobs of which you are the foreman. Every week the time-sheets were scrutinised, and every now and then a man would be had up on the carpet in the office before Rushton and Misery, and interrogated as to why he had taken fifteen hours to do ten hours' work. In the event of the accused being unable to give a satisfactory explanation of his conduct, he was usually sacked on the spot. Misery was frequently called up on the carpet himself. If he made a mistake in figuring out a job, and gave in too high a tender for it, so that the firm did not get the work, Rushton grumbled. If the price was so low that there was not enough profit, Rushton was very unpleasant about it. And whenever it happened that there was not only no profit, but an actual loss, Rushton created such a terrible disturbance that Misery was nearly frightened to death, and used to get on his bicycle and rush off to the nearest job and howl and bellow at the chaps to get it done. All the time the capabilities of the men, especially with regard to speed, were carefully watched and noted, and whenever there was a slackness of work and it was necessary to discharge some hands, those that were too slow or took too much pains were weeded out. This, of course, was known to the men, and it had a desired effect upon them. In justice to Rushton and Hunter, it must be remembered that there was a certain amount of excuse for all this driving and cheating, because they had to compete with all the other firms, who conducted their business in precisely the same way. It was not their fault, but the fault of the system. A dozen firms tendered for every job, and, of course, the lowest tender usually obtained the work. Knowing this, they all cut the price down to the lowest possible figure, and the workmen had to suffer. The trouble was that there were too many masters. It would have been far better for the workmen if nine out of every ten of the employers had never started business. Then the others would have been able to get a better price for their work, and the men might have had better wages and conditions. The hands, however, made no such allowances or excuses as these for Misery and Rushton. They never thought or spoke of them except with hatred and curses. But whenever either of them came to the job, the coddies cringed and grovelled before them, greeting them with disgustingly servile salutations, plentifully interspersed with the word, Sir greetings which were frequently either ignored altogether or answered with an inarticulate grunt. They said sir at nearly every second word. It made one feel sick to hear them, because it was not courtesy. They were never courteous to each other. It was simply abject servility and self-contempt. One of the results of all the frenzied hurrying was that every now and then there was an accident. Somebody got hurt, and it was strange that accidents were not more frequent, considering the risks that were taken. When they happened to be working on ladders in busy streets, they were often not allowed to have anyone to stand at the foot, and the consequence was that all sorts and conditions of people came into violent collision with the bottom of the ladders. Small boys, playing in the reckless manner characteristic of their years, rushed up against them. Errand boys, absorbed in the perusal of penny instalments of the adventures of Claude Duval, and carrying large baskets of green groceries, wandered into them. Blind men fell foul of them, adventurous schoolboys climbed up them, people with large feet became entangled in them, fat persons of both sexes who thought it unlucky to walk underneath tried to negotiate the narrow strip of pavement between the foot of the ladder and the curb, and in their passage knocked up against the ladder and sometimes fell into the road. 
nursemaids wheeling perambulators lolling over the handle which they usually held with their left hands the right one holding a copy of orange blossom or some halfpenny paper and so interested in the story of the marquis of lime juice a young man of noble presence and fabulous wealth with a drooping golden moustache and very long legs who notwithstanding the diabolical machinations of lady sybil malvoy's who loves him as well as a woman with a name like that is capable of loving any one is determined to wed none other than the scullery-maid at the village inn, inevitably bashed the perambulators into the ladders. Even when the girls were not reading, they nearly always ran into the ladders, which seemed to possess a magnetic attraction for perambulators and go-carts of all kind, whether propelled by nurses or mothers. Sometimes they would advance very cautiously towards the ladder, then, when they got very near, hesitate a little whether to go under or run the risk of falling into the street by essaying the narrow passage. Then they would get very close up to the foot of the ladder, and dodge and dance about, and give the little cart pushes from side to side, until at last the magnetic influence exerted itself, and the perambulator crashed into the ladder, perhaps at the very moment that the man at the top was stretching out to do some part of the work almost beyond his reach. Once Harlow had just started painting some rain-pipes from the top of a forty-foot ladder, when one of several small boys who were playing in the street ran violently against the foot. Harlow was so startled that he dropped his brushes and clutched wildly at the ladder, which turned completely round and slid about six feet along the parapet into the angle of the wall, with Harlow hanging beneath by his hands. The paint-pot was hanging by a hook from one of the rungs, and the jerk scattered the brown paint it contained all over Harlow and all over the brickwork of the front of the house. He managed to descend safely by clasping his legs round the sides of the ladder and sliding down. When misery came there was a row about what he called carelessness, and the next day Harlow had to wear his Sunday trousers to work. On another occasion they were painting the outside of a house called Gothic Lodge. At one corner it had a tower surmounted by a spire or steeple, and this steeple terminated with an ornamental wrought-iron pinnacle, which had to be painted. The ladder they had was not quite long enough, and besides that, as it had to stand in a sort of courtyard at the base of the tower, it was impossible to slant it sufficiently. Instead of lying along the roof of the steeple, it was sticking up in the air. When Easton went up to paint the pinnacle, he had to stand almost on the very top rung of the ladder, to be exact the third from the top, and lean over to steady himself by holding on to the pinnacle with his left hand while he used the brush with his right. As it was only about twenty minutes' work, there were two men to hold the foot of the ladder. It was cheaper to do it this way than to rig up a proper scaffold, which would have entailed perhaps two hours' work for two or three men. Of course it was very dangerous, but that did not matter at all, because even if the man fell it would make no difference to the firm. All the men were insured, and somehow or other, although they frequently had narrow escapes, they did not often come to grief. On this occasion, just as Easton was finishing, he felt the pinnacle that he was holding on to give way, and he got such a fright that his heart nearly stopped beating. He let go his hold and steadied himself on the ladder as well as he was able, and when he had descended three or four steps to comparative safety, he remained clinging convulsively to the ladder, and feeling so limp that he was unable to go down any further for several minutes. When he arrived at the bottom, and the others noticed how white and trembling he was, he told them about the pinnacle being loose, and the coddy coming along just then, they told him about it, and suggested that it should be repaired, as otherwise it might fall down and hurt somebody. But the coddy was afraid that if they reported it, they might be blamed for breaking it, and the owner might expect the firm to put it right for nothing. So they decided to say nothing about it. 
The pinnacle is still on the apex of the steeple, waiting for a sufficiently strong wind to blow it down on somebody's head. When the other men heard of Easton's narrow shave, most of them said that it would have served him bloody well right if he had fallen and broken his neck. He should have refused to go up at all without a proper scaffold. That's what they would have done. If Misery or the Coddy had ordered any of them to go up and paint the pinnacle off that ladder, they would have chucked their tools down and demanded their halfpence. That was what they said, but somehow or other it never happened that any of them ever chucked down their tools at all, although such dangerous jobs were of very frequent occurrence. The scamping business was not confined to houses or properties of an inferior class. It was the general rule. Large, good-class houses, villas and mansions, the residences of wealthy people, were done in exactly the same way. Generally in such places, costly and beautiful materials were spoilt in the using. There was a large mansion where the interior woodwork, the doors, window and staircase, had to be finished in white enamel. It was rather an old house, and the woodwork needed rubbing down and filling up before being repainted, but of course there was no time for that. So they painted it without properly preparing it, and when it was enamelled the rough, uneven surface of the wood looked horrible, but the owner appeared quite satisfied because it was nice and shiny. The dining-room of the same house was papered with a beautiful and expensive plush paper. The ground of this wall-hanging was made to imitate crimson-watered silk, and it was covered with a raised pattern in plush of the same colour. The price marked on the back of this paper in the pattern-book was eighteen shillings a roll. Slime was paid sixpence a roll for hanging it. The room took ten rolls, so it cost nine pounds for the paper and five shillings to hang it. To fix such a paper as this properly, the walls should first be done with a plain lining paper of the same colour as the ground of the wallpaper itself, because unless the paper-hanger laps the joints, which should not be done, they are apt to open a little as the paper dries and to show the white wall underneath. Slime suggested this lining to Misery, who would not entertain the idea for a moment. They had gone to quite enough expense as it was, stripping the old paper off. So Slime went ahead, and as he had to make his wages, he could not spend a great deal of time over it. Some of the joints were lapped, and some were butted, and two or three weeks after the owner of the house moved in, as the paper became more dry, the joints began to open and to show the white plaster of the wall and then Owen had to go there with a small pot of crimson paint and a little brush and touch out the white line. While he was doing this he noticed and touched up a number of other faults, places where Slime, in his haste to get the work done, had slobbered and smeared the face of the paper with finger-marks and paste. The same ghastly mess was made of several other jobs besides this one, and presently they adopted the plan of painting strips of colour on the wall in the places where the joints would come so that if they opened the white wall would not show. But it was found that the paste on the back of the paper dragged the paint off the wall, and when the joints opened the white streaks showed all the same, so Misery abandoned all attempts to prevent joints showing, and if a customer complained he sent someone to touch it up. But the lining paper was never used, unless the customer or the architect knew enough about the work to insist upon it. In other parts of the same house, the ceilings, the friezes, and the dados were covered with embossed or relief papers. These hangings require very careful handling, for the raised parts are easily damaged. But the men who fixed them were not allowed to take the pains and time necessary to make good work. Consequently, in many places, especially at the joints, the pattern was flattened out and obliterated. The ceiling of the drawing-room was done with a very thick, high-relief paper that was made in sheets about two feet square. 
These squares were not very true in shape. They had evidently warped and drying after manufacture. To make them match anything like properly would need considerable time and care. But the men were not allowed to take the necessary time. The result was that when it was finished it presented a sort of higgledy-piggledy appearance. But it didn't matter. Nothing seemed to matter except to get it done. One would think from the way the hands were driven and chivied and hurried over the work they were being paid five or six shillings an hour instead of as many pence. "'Get it done!' shouted Misery from morning till night. "'For God's sake, get it done! Haven't you finished yet? We're losing money over this job. If you chaps don't wake up or move a bit quicker, I shall see if I can't get somebody else who will.' These costly embossed decorations were usually finished in white, but instead of carefully coating them with specially prepared paint of patent distemper, which would need two or three coats, they slobbered one thick coat of common whitewash on it with ordinary whitewash brushes. This was a most economical way to get over it, because it made it unnecessary to stop up the joints beforehand. The whitewash filled up all the cracks, and it also filled up the hollow parts, the crevices and the interstices of the ornament, destroying the sharp outlines of the beautiful designs and reducing the whole to a lumpy, formless mass. But that did not matter either, so long as they got it done. The architect didn't notice it, because he knew that the more Rushton & Co. made out of the job, the more he himself would make. The man who had to pay for the work didn't notice it. He had the fullest confidence in the architect. At the risk of wearying the long-suffering listener, mention must be made of an affair that happened at this particular job. The windows were all fitted with Venetian blinds. The gentleman for whom the work was being done had only just purchased the house, but he preferred roller blinds. He had had roller-blinds in his former residence, which he had just sold, and as these roller-blinds were about the right size, he decided to have them fitted to the windows of the new house. So he instructed Mr. Rushton to have all the Venetian blinds taken down and stored away up in the loft under the roof. Mr. Rushton promised to have this done, but they were not all put away under the roof. He had four of them taken to his own place and fitted up in the conservatory. They were a little too large, so they had to be narrowed before they were fixed. The sequel was rather interesting, for it happened that when the gentleman attempted to take the roller-blinds from his old house, the person to whom he had sold it refused to allow them to be removed, claiming that when he bought the house he bought the blinds also. There was a little dispute, but eventually it was settled that way, and the gentleman decided that he would have to have the Venetian blinds in his new house after all, and instructed the people who moved his furniture to take the Venetian blinds down again from under the roof, and refix them, and then, of course, it was discovered that four of the blinds were missing. Mr. Rushton was sent for, and he said that he couldn't understand it at all. The only possible explanation that he could think of was that some of his workmen must have stolen them. He would make inquiries and endeavour to discover the culprit, but in any case, as this had happened while things were in his charge, if he did not succeed in recovering them, he would replace them. As the blinds had been narrowed to fit the conservatory, he had to have four new ones made. The customer was of course quite satisfied, although very sorry for Mr. Rushton. They had a little chat about it. Rushton told the gentleman that he would be astonished if he knew all the facts. The difficulties one has to contend with in dealing with working men, one has to watch them continually. Directly one's back is turned, they leave off working. They come in late in the morning, and go home before the proper time at night, and then, unless one actually happens to catch them, they charge the full number of hours on their time-sheets. Every now and then something would be missing, and of course nobody knew anything about it. 
Sometimes one would go unexpectedly to a job and find a lot of them drunk. Of course, one tried to cope with these evils by means of rules and restrictions and organisation, but it was very difficult. One could not be everywhere or have eyes in the back of one's head. The gentleman said that he had some idea of what it was like. He had had something to do with the lower orders himself at one time and another, and he knew they needed a lot of watching. Rushton felt rather sick over this affair, but he consoled himself by reflecting that he had got clear away with several valuable rose-trees and other plants which he had stolen out of the garden, and that a ladder which had been discovered in the hayloft over the stable and taken, by his instructions, to the yard when the job was finished, had not been missed. Another circumstance which helped to compensate for the blinds was that the brass fittings throughout the house, finger-plates, sash-lifts and locks, bolts and door-handles, which were supposed to be all new, and which the customer had paid a good price for, were really all the old ones which Misery had had re-lacquered and refixed. There was nothing unusual about this affair of the blinds, for Rushton and Misery robbed everybody. They made a practice of annexing everything they could lay their hands upon, provided it could be done without danger to themselves. They never did anything of a heroic or daredevil character. They had not the courage to break into banks or jewellers' shops in the middle of the night, or to go picking pockets. All their robberies were of the sneak-thief order. At one house that they did up, Misery made a big haul. He had to get up into the loft, under the roof, to see what was the matter with the water-tank. When he got up there, he found a very fine hall gas-lamp, made of wrought brass and copper with stained and painted glass sides. Although covered with dust, it was otherwise in perfect condition, so Misery had it taken to his own house and cleaned up and fixed in the hall. In the same loft there was a lot of old brass picture-rods and other fittings, and three very good planks, each about ten feet in length. These latter had been placed across the rafters so that one could walk easily and safely over to the tank, but Misery thought they would be very useful to the firm for whitewashing ceilings and other work, so he had them taken to the yard along with the old brass, which was worth about fourpence a pound. There was another house that had to be painted inside. The people who used to live there had only just left. They had moved to some other town, and the house had been relet before they vacated it. The new tenant had agreed with the agent that the house was to be renovated throughout before he took possession. The day after the old tenants moved away, the agent gave Rushton the key so that he could go and see what was to be done, and give an estimate for the work. While Rushton and Misery were looking over the house, they discovered a large barometer hanging on the wall behind the front door. It had been overlooked by those who removed the furniture. Before returning the key to the agent, Rushton sent one of his men to the house for the barometer, which he kept in his office for a few weeks to see if there would be any inquiries about it. If there had been, it would have been easy to say that he had brought it there for safety, to take care of it till he could find the owner. The people to whom it belonged thought the thing had been lost or stolen in transit, and afterwards one of the workmen who had assisted to pack and remove the furniture was dismissed from his employment on suspicion of having had something to do with its disappearance. No one ever thought of Rushton in connection with the matter. So after about a month he had it taken to his own dwelling and hung up on the wall, near the carved oak marble-topped console table, that he had sneaked last summer from 596 Grand Parade. And there it hangs unto this day, and close behind it, supported by cords of crimson silk, is a beautifully bevel-edged card about a foot square, and upon this card is written, in letters of gold, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. 
and on the other side of the barometer is another card of the same kind and size which says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. From another place they stole two large brass chandeliers. This house had been empty for a very long time, and its owner, who did not reside in the town, wished to sell it. The agent, to improve the chances of a sale, decided to have the house overhauled and redecorated. Rushton and Co.'s tender being the lowest, they got the work. The chandeliers in the drawing-room and the dining-room were of massive brass, but they were all blackened and tarnished. Misery suggested to the agent that they could be cleaned and relacquered, which would make them equal to new. In fact, they would be better than new ones, for such things as these were not made now, and for once Misery was telling the truth. The agent agreed, and the work was done. It was an extra, of course, and as the firm got twice as much for the job as they paid for having it done, they were almost satisfied. When this and all the other work was finished, they sent in their account, and were paid. Some months afterwards the house was sold, and Nimrod interviewed the new proprietor with the object of securing the order for any work that he might want done. He was successful. The papers on the walls of several of the rooms were not to the new owner's taste, and, of course, the woodwork would have to be repainted to harmonise with the new paper. There was a lot of other work besides this, a new conservatory to be built, a more modern bath and heating apparatus to be put in, and the electric light to be installed, the new people having an objection to the use of gas. The specifications were prepared by an architect, and Rushton secured the work. When the chandeliers were taken down, the men, instructed by misery, put them on a hand-cart and covered them over with sacks and dust-sheets, and took them to the front shop, where they were placed for sale with the other stock. When all the work at the house was finished, it occurred to Rushton and Nimrod that when the architect came to examine and pass the work before giving them the certificate, that would enable them to present their account, he might remember the chandeliers and inquire what had become of them. So they were again placed on the handcart, covered with sacks and dust-sheets, taken back to the house, and put up in the loft under the roof, so that if he asked for them, they were there. The architect came, looked over the house and passed the work, and gave his certificate. He never mentioned or thought of the chandeliers. The owner of the house was present, and asked Rushton for his bill, for which he at once gave him a cheque, and Rushton and Misery almost grovelled and wallowed on the ground before him. Throughout the whole interview the architect and the gentleman had kept their hats on, but Rushton and Nimrod had been respectfully uncovered all the time, and as they followed the other two about the house their bearing had been expressive of the most abject servility. When the architect and the owner were gone the two chandeliers were taken down again from under the roof and put on a hand-cart, covered over with sacks and dust-sheets, and taken back to the shop and again placed for sale with the other stock. These are only a few of the petty thefts committed by these people. To give anything approaching a full account, the rest would require a separate volume. End of chapter 43, part 1